Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about old stuff and art and books and kind of whatever we feel like talking about. My name is Thomas Magby. I am joined by Graham Donaldson. Hello. And AJ Hannenberg. That's me. Uh, today we are going to be talking about mm, a ballad, a song. We're going to be singing. We're, We're going to do this yeah. entire thing mm-hmm. in... Yeah. Me, 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 You, you want to set the tone? Me, yeah, yeah. Do the... Uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Ready? We are, fellas, learning today about a book, okay. a poem, a ballad okay. called The Ballad of the White Horse. And it is a poem written by... Is it the sequel to Black Beauty? Mm. Not a sequel to Black Beauty. Like it was the, a prequel. Same, point? It's a prequel. prequel yeah, until yeah. Black Beauty fell in a tar pit. Ah, uh, yes. And then, <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, wait, so it wait, was other way, about wait. Black yes. Beauty before the tar? That's right, before the tar pit. Okay. Mm-hmm. No, we are reading, uh, we're talking about The Battle of the White Horse. It is a poem written by G.K. Chesterton, friend of the podcast. <laughs> nope. And, sure just, he is. I mean, no. I'm sure if he was around. Yeah, thank if you. He, That's just one. So he's probably smiling down on us. Okay, good. Um, and it is a poem depicting... Uh, the battle of King Alfred the Great of Wessex against Gerthrum, Gunthrum, Gunthrum. You made that up. No, no, Gunthrum, King of the Danes. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the battle. Uh, that's not really what we're talking about today is the battle. But anyway, the, the poem is about Ethan this big old Dun- battle where Alfred the Great defeats Gunthrum. That and, sounds awesome. Yeah, it's great. I'm so on board. So um, l- let me give a little bit of background about... Uh, Alfred the Great and Gunthrum and uh, what was happening in England at the time and the years and all that stuff. And then I want to actually read a section of the Alfred story because in it, Chesterton is talking about, um, I think my take on it is he's talking about like the stages of human culture when um, it is sort of spiraling in despair and maybe uh, human culture when it has removed God from the equation. This is at least my thesis, so I'll see if you guys think about that. But anyway, a little bit about this poem. So it was written in the early 20th century, 1915 or 1918 or something like that, maybe even earlier, 1910. And it's called The Bell of the White Horse because it's making reference to an ancient um, sort of uh, artifact in England. It is a horse carved out of a hillside. What? So, you know, uh, you know, there's like Stonehenge and that's uh-huh. like this old ancient thing and we don't really know what it is and it's probably a calendar and it's from these, an- right. you know that it's a calendar? Sure. Uh, from these ancient, you know, ancient Anglo-Saxon uh, civilization. Well, there's this white horse, similar, it's on, the, it's on this hillside and it's a horse made out of limestone or it's made out of stone placed into the hillside and it's been there, you know, longer than recorded history. It's this this um, this beautiful sort of you, and you. It's one of those things you can like see from space, hmm. right? Like you know, how there's these weird. Yeah, that's it right there. Uh, Hanberg just found it on the internet. You know, how there are these like weird ancient um, uh, artifacts that are visible from you know really high places, but um, um, there's you know a bunch of, of walls and, and snakes and things in uh, you know the Aztecs. And there's this white horse. If you Google the white horse, what did you Google to find it there, Hannenberg? England white horse. There you go. England white horse. <laughs> or English white horse. And, you know, there, there's there's these sort of fascinating things throughout history that there seemed to be this period of, of human artistic expression where we were making stuff on hills that could be visible from the air, from even the though air. we couldn't be in the air. Yeah. It's because it's confusing. I'm not so saying the, it's aliens. So the aliens could see yeah. it. Right. Exactly. I'm not saying it's aliens. Right. But there's only one logical explanation. Anyway, the white horse is one of these things. Chesterton uses that as a symbol of 
Um, my take on it is that it's um, um, it's essentially like I don't know civilization, English Christendom. I can't. I don't even know. Maybe that's something that maybe you readers can read, figure out for yourself. What is the white horse? Why does Chesterton clearly thinks that the white horse symbolizes like a um, the, the way human beings ought to exist. Um, and the, the culture that produced it was like a culture in harmony. But the white they horse... They had to work together. Sorry. Go but ahead. the white horse doesn't come up during the ballad? It does, in that when uh, when King Alfred defeats Guntherum... So the, the white horse has gone into disrepair during the age of, of uh, Alfred. And when Alfred defeats Guntherum at the battle, which he shouldn't have won, but he does, he then scours the white horse and, re- and brings it back to its former glory and makes it white again, whereas it's been overgrown by weeds and all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of like the symbol of, of human beings... You know, going back and making things, you know, repairing the things that kind of fall apart. Um, that the white horse is the way that the world should be. And then if we sort of ignore it and let it go to seed and go to weed and everything falls apart. And then uh, Alfred comes in and then scours it and brings it back to its former glistening glory. And it seems like the continuation of culture, right? Yeah. Culture was threatened. He could have died and lost everything. Mm-hmm. He wins and mm-hmm. continues on the culture of Britain, which is. This white horse that's been there for forever. Yes. Yeah, that's essentially it. Okay. So King Alfred the Great, uh, he was a king of Wessex. Wessex was a region of what we now know as England. There was a bunch of different regions. There was Wessex. There was Essex. There was East Anglia. There was West Anglia. There was Mercia. All these places. You, uh, there was Northumbria. Um, these are all sort of places in the in the UK. And Wessex is sort of in the south central. It's right around. It's not where London is, but it's just west of London. It's and then London is in Essex. If you're if you're thinking of it in terms of geography, I'm pretty sure. Um, anyway, Alfred was the king of Wessex, and he shouldn't have been king. His brother was king, and his brother was kind of dopey and bad at a king, and he died. And then Alfred became king. Alfred was not a great warrior. Um, he was kind of a bookish man. Um, and at this time, England had been invaded by the Danes, by the, by the Vikings. And in fact, the region known as York, or in the north, Northumbria, was completely Danish, pagan. Um, and we love Vikings. People love Vikings. You know, we tell Viking stories all the time. Um, but we've kind of romanticized Vikings. If you go back and look at some of the Viking practices and Viking lore and Viking religion, it's pretty vile stuff. Ritualistic rapes, uh, uh, the killing of, uh, you know, uh, blood sacrifices. We're getting into like, you know, like like Bale, dark, dark paganism territory. There's some rough stuff in the old Vikings. Chris. Um, and, the you know, sort of a warrior culture, a hard... A hard culture of, of conquest and blood and sacrifice and, you know, some, some rough things. And then, um, so the years we're looking at are roughly around the 800s when Alfred was around, Alfred the Great. Anyway, um, Gunthrum was a king of the Danes and he was going to go conquer Wessex. And Alfred, so I'll tell you the story and then we'll get into the, into the poem. So the story goes that the Virgin Mary appeared to Alfred, and Alfred was an older man at this time, was sort of nearing the end of his life, and the Virgin Mary appeared to Alfred and said that um, this sort of invading pagan horde was coming, and um, she appeared to Alfred and said that you are going to be victorious, and I'm going to be with you, and you need to rally all of the Christian troops. And at this point, all of the the Christian troops of Wessex were basically defeatists. We cannot defeat the Danes. They are greater in number. They are fiercer warriors. We are just farmer folk. 
um, the Anglo-Saxons were not the fearsome warriors that the Danes were. Um, these hardened, bloodthirsty men. Um, and so there was sort of this defeatist attitude that the Danes were going to roll over. Christianity would have to kind of go become a subversive thing because the Danes and their and their pagan religion was going to was going to win. And Wessex and Wessex days were numbered and Alfred's days were numbered. I don't know what they're so worried about. If anyone's <laughs> actually watched the movie of Beowulf, they couldn't even beat Angelina Jolie. That's so true. I don't yes, see historically so accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so the Virgin Mary appears to Alfred and says, "Hey, Alfred, you are going to be successful." So Alfred goes, and he gathers his um, men. And I'm I'm telling you the story of the poem. I'm sure the history is a little bit different. So the story of the poem is is that Alfred goes and he gathers his uh, the chieftains. And the three main chieftains are Eldred, who is the Anglo-Saxon warrior, and he doesn't want to fight. He just wants to farm and, and brew his ale. Um, and then he also – and then he uh, uh, basically gets Eldred to, to join. And then he goes to another chieftain whose name is Mark. And Mark is a Roman who has lived in England after the end of the Roman Empire but still believes in the Empire of Rome, that, that the Christian Roman Empire has conquered the world. Um, but is now in decline over the, the invading pagans. And then he also gets a chieftain who is a Gael, or that is sort of like the um, the, the Irish Christianity, uh, the Gaelic, um, Welsh, Irish, uh, Northwestern uh, Christianity. And I can't remember his name, um, but he's kind of this like mystic, grouchy, um, boggy uh, man. Um, mystic and grouchy? Yeah, mystic, grouchy, and He's boggy. not like mystic and moony. He's like, mm. he's like I want to go pray. Yes, you exactly. You better not really? talk to me. And yes, you better not talk to me, and uh, I want to pray, and I don't want anything to do with this war, but then he kind of, uh, Al, um, Alfred in, cool. uh, sort of inspires him to come and fight to so, the scale. So you no have one, these three. No one wants to be there. No one really wants to be there because they think it's a lost cause. And Alfred's like, hey, the Virgin Mary herself said we're going to win. And everyone's like, nah. There's lots of stories like that. Um, <laughs> um, and these three sort of men typify, I think for Chesterton, these sort of the, the, the three main expressions of the Christian faith, at least in the English-speaking world. Um, um, the, the simple, the, the sort of like the free-loving country gentleman who wants to have his freehold and, and, and brew his own beer. There's that sort of Christian man. And then there's the Christian expression of, of the man, of like the church militant, in uh, that the church is that force which used to, um, you know, rule the world and, and doesn't anymore and longs for it to happen again in this sort of Roman of Mark. And then this Irish mystic who um, um, is, I don't know, this expression of the church that is um, very in tune with the natural world and um, is kind of sees itself outside of the structures of power and that kind of thing. I don't want to get too far into that. You readers, you yourself, I'm just trying to whet your appetite to go and read this thing for yourself. But th those three characters are very interesting and they represent these three various different like facets of, of essentially British or, or English speaking Christendom. How vivid are these characters when they're presented? Oh, they they're have awesome. Individual quirks. Yep. Like does one of them have the gout? Or no, have horses but um, or they all talk about how they want to die. And the only one that I can remember is Mark. And Mark says, bury me wherever I fall because um, every land is Roman land and where I'll die is Rome. Because like we conquered the world, so wherever I die is Rome. He's you know very proud of being Roman. And he's really grumpy that they can't grow grapes in the UK because um, he wants his wine. You can't grow them in, oh, like just the soil's not good Yeah, for the soil's it. not good oh. enough for like 
you know, thick red Roman wine. Anyway, so there's things like that, right? Do you guys know the story about when Caesar went up to defeat the Brits and he went over there and he like led this big campaign and he's like, oh man, you guys are just so poor and dejected and have nothing that it's not even worth conquering you. Yes. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he left because they they would put up a little fight, but not much of one because they're like, sure, take our baskets. Like, it's <laughs> great. Enjoy. Caesar's like this place. Caesar's like, it's really like rainy up here and I don't know why I'm doing this. So he left. <laughs> anyway, so Alfred gets all of his men and they're going to beat me at this battle. Then the story goes on and Alfred, dis- he's an older man. He disguises himself as a beggar and he goes to the camps of the Danes with a harp and he plays a song for the Danes, ta- essentially singing a song of the glories of Christendom and all the Danes laugh at him and they all take his harp and each of the three Danish warlords sing their own song as to what they think the nature of the universe is. And that's the section that we're going to look at. And there's the, the, the three Danes, there's this younger guy and he has a particular vision of the world. And then there's the middle Dane and he has a particular vision of the world, the older Dane, and he has a particular vision. And then Gunther himself takes up the harp and sings a song. And then, um, Alfred has a rebuttal uh, song at the end. We're actually going to, I'm going to read maybe the whole chapter. It's not very long and it's in ballad, which is very nice to listen to. Can you imagine this happening with our current armies? It's just like, you know. Our generals get together and sing songs about what they believe the world to be. Mm. That'd be awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah. uh, Like, um, what are some of the American generals? Like, like Colin Powell, like goes off Mm. and. and Just start singing. Has like a guitar and goes to like... So you have your your, your, your uh, southern general who sings like a western song. That'd be great. I love it. Left my girl and ain't that the way of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you know, I can like, see that happening. I can see that happening. Or if they had to do it in Congress. Every time you had a filibuster, mm. you had to do it to meter and rhyme. Oh. That... Would be I would, much better. Yes, that would That's be an great. improvement. Wouldn't that be amazing? In a ballot form. Yeah. I'm going to submit that bill. Good. Um, and then uh, the, that chapter ends with Alfred... Um, being defiant, but also being very despondent because he saw the camps and he's like, we're, we're screwed. Um, he goes off and he pouts by himself at a small town. And this woman, this little peasant woman sees him pouting. And she says, well, if you're going to pout, can you watch my cakes on the fire? I'll give you a cake if you watch my cakes as they cook. I need to what? go do something else. She's okay. like baking. Yeah, still weird. And so he's like, fine, I'll watch your cakes. And he's really hungry. He's like, I'll watch If I get a cake, I'll watch them. And he's thinking about the status of the world, and he's not really paying attention, and all the cakes fall into the fire and burn. Bummer. And then the little peasant lady comes back and smacks him across the face so hard that it leaves a big scar. Good. And she's like, who are you? Are you a dork? Like, you let these cakes burn. And then he gets all like, I'm the freaking king of Wessex. And he gets all like angry at her he's like i'm gonna have you killed and she's like i don't care you burnt my cakes i don't care if you're the king in my mind he tears open his shirt and he has a big tattoo that says like king of wessex Mm -hmm. on his chest and then she's you know a mixture of like oh crap i'm probably gonna die but also i'm totally in the right because you burned my cakes because you were just like worrying about the world and for some and then uh alfred realizes oh no i she's right i shouldn't be a jerk to her I shouldn't, and then he has this sort of shame of of worry, of, of anxiety, and of fretting. He's like, if we're going to get conquered, like, God's still in charge, so we'll just get conquered, or we won't get conquered. And Mary told me we won't. So he kind of, like, has this, what will be, will be almost like a Hamlet, you know, uh, um, sentiment at the end of Hamlet where he says, you know, um, the readiness is all. Like, what's going to come is going to come. There, there's no sense in... Uh, worrying about it is not going to change it. And in fact, worrying about it is going to ruin other people's lives, like this poor woman's cakes. 
Um, and then the battle happens where he gets all his, his armies together and they are vastly, vastly outnumbered. And one of the Danes comes out and like mocks them and shoots an arrow to start the battle and misses uh, um, Alfred. And then the Gale takes Alfred's sword and like hucks it tomahawk style and it kills the Dane. And that starts the battle, Dang. which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And then there, uh, I'm going to ruin it. There's a big old battle and then all three of Alfred's um, chieftains die. And they have these very glamorous, they have these sort of very beautiful, I don't know, it sounds weird to say, but these very beautiful deaths where they die. And then all of the chieftains of the the three chieftains of the Danes die. And then it's Alfred and Guntherum are fighting. And then Guntherum throws, no, the, the last chieftain throws a spear at Alfred and it lodges into a tree and Alfred kills the last chieftain. And for some reason, uh, Guntherum is super inspired and um, um, at the fact that all the forces of the Christendom are about to die. And like Alfred is basically, no, he's not last man standing, but like they're going to lose. And yet they're still fighting. And uh, Guntherum is going to be this conquering king who's going to win. And then Guntherum stops the war and asks Alfred to baptize him. And Alfred does. And then Guntherum uh, decides that he is going to go back to Northumbria and he's not going to conquer Wessex. And Alfred decides that he, and then Alfred gets to stay king of Wessex. And that's the end of the story. Um, and then the story, well, the story ends with Alfred saying, one day the Danes will conquer us. Um, but when they come, they won't conquer us with swords. They will conquer us with ink and books. And these sort of bookish men will come, and he's talking about, like, the, um, the Normans. And there's the Norman mm-hmm. invasion, and then the Anglo-Saxon and the Normans sort of commingle to become the English. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's how the book ends. Chester Interesting. Yeah. So he's just so jazzed that the Christians are fighting so hard that he's like, I want what you got. Yeah. And it all stems back to this, conversa- to this thing that we're going to read, which is where they're all talking about why they fight and what everything is all about. Hmm. Was there any... Literary references to the Song of Roland. Did any of them smack a sword on a rock for a while and then lay on top of it? I mean, it's it reads a lot like it. Okay, um, Chesterton, I'm sure, read the Song of Roland because I figure you you say they all had glamorous deaths. Roland's death was not that glamorous. He banged his sword on a rock for about a half an hour and then laid on his sword. Yeah, no, these ones are super awesome. Where like, you know, they give like final speeches. Um, I think Eldred gets stabbed by spears seven times and he's he's like a mountain of a man he's standing there with like seven spears sticking out of them and he's like quoting scripture and swinging a sword <laughs> and he talks about how much he misses his farm and his oh, cows wow. and his ale and it's it's very it's it's very charming um but um but yeah everything sort of come at least in my reading of it everything comes back to this scene where alfred comes as a um as a uh, as a peasant and sings the songs and all of the Danes get a chance to sort of posit why they fight and why they conquer and why they do what they do. And my reading of it, and I want to read it and I want to hear your, your guys' interpretation, is that all of the Danes' descriptions of why they do things are a bit of a progression, with Gunthrum being the sort of the terminus of the pagan um, worldview. If you let paganism run its course... Um, and I and I think for Chesterton, paganism and sort of like secular modernity are interchangeable. Sure, secular modernity doesn't say that they believe in gods, but um, 
but if you just sort of if you you don't actually believe in the gods, but like the things that the gods represented are things you believe in, like pleasure or money or power and that kind of thing. Um, and I and I think Chesterton is doing in this section that if you let sort of this this um, secular uh, modernity run its course, you get to Gunthram's belief, and Gunthram, and then uh, and then Alfred will stand up and he will offer his rebuttal. And, and uh, the reason I'm doing this is because Alfred has this one phrase that I think is very pertinent to the podcast, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. But we're going to read a little bit of it. And because it's a ballad, it's supposed to be listened to, and it's very beautiful. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit of this. So this is in book three called The Harp of Alfred. Um, and I'm going to sort of skip ahead a little bit to it. Um, let's see. Um, okay, here we go. So Alfred comes into the camp. With three great earls, King Gunthram went, went ra- the rounds from fire to fire. With Harold, nephew of the king, and Ogier of the stone and sling, an elf whose gold lute had a string that sighed like all desire. So those are the three chieftains of Gunthram. is Harold, Ogier, and Elf. The earls of the great army that no men born could tire whose flames anear him or aloof took hold of towers or walls of proof, fire over Glastonbury roof and out of Eli fire. And Gunthram heard the soldier's tale and bade the stranger play, not harshly, but as one on high, on a marble pillar in the sky, who sees all folk that live and die pygmy and far away. And Alfred, king of Wessex, looked on his conqueror, and his hand hardened, but he played, and leaving all later hates unsaid, he sang of some old British raid on the wild west march of yore. He sang of war in the warm wet shires, where rain nor futage fails, where England of the motley states deepens like a garden to the gates in the purple walls of Wales. He sang of the seas of savage herds, and the seas and seas of spears, boiling all over Ofa's dyke, what time a Wessex club could strike the kings of the mountaineers. So Alfred's kind of like just tells just general folk stories about the wars of Wessex. And then, till Harold laughed and snatched the harp, the kinsman of the king, a big youth beardless like a child, whom the new wine of war sent wild, smote and began to sing. And he, he smote the guitar? He smote. He's like, yeah. Because he, he's, he's young. He's a thrasher. Yeah, he plays he's metal. A, he's a thrasher. <laughs> and so we're going to read Harold, and you're going to tell me what Harold's sort of view of the world is. Okay. And he cried of the ships as eagles that circle fiercely and fly, and sweep the seas and strike the towns from Cyprus round to sky. How, how swiftly and with peril they gather all good things, the high horns of the forest beasts or the secret stones of kings. For Rome was given to rule the world, and gat of it little joy. But we, but we shall enjoy the world, the whole huge world a toy. Great wine like blood from Burgundy, cloaks like the clouds from Tyre, and marble like solid moonlight, and gold like frozen fire. Smells that a man might swill in a cup, stones that a man might eat. And the great smooth women like ivory that the Turks sell in the street. He sang the throne of the thief of the world and the gods that love the thief. 
and he yelled aloud at the cloister yards where men go gathering grief. Well, have you sung, O stranger, of the death of the dykes in Wales? Your chief was a bracelet giver, but the red, unbroken river of a race runs not forever, but suddenly it fails. Doubtless your sires were sword swingers when they waded fresh from foam, before they were turned to women by the god of the nails from Rome. So he's like mocking the Christians that, that have turned the warriors into womenish folk. But since you bent to the shaven men who neither lust nor smite, thunder of Thor, we hunt you a hare on the mountain height. Okay, so that's Harold's view. So what's, what's Harold's, like, whole impetus for existence? What's his view of, like, why men exist? He wants to conquer the world, doesn't he? And experience all that stuff? He's a wild hedonist. Right. Yeah. He, yeah. He's like, the world is beautiful and it's there for the taking and by gosh, I'm going to take it. Yes. God of thieves. Here we uh, go. Yes, the God of thieves, exactly. The, and then the gods love the thieves and the world is for the taking. And you Christians have become, um, what does he say? Um, you neither lust nor smite. It's like, how boring. What are you even doing? What are you even doing <laughs> you're if like, you're not lusting or smiting? You, how do you hang out? Like reading? Yes. Good heavens. Yes. You are beardless, he says. You Christian men are beardless. Isn't he beardless? Doesn't it start no. Well, he's way? young. Because oh. It's because he's young. Oh. <laughs> but um, he's, trying, he's, he's trying. He's getting he's there. He's got, he's got his fuzz. He's getting there. But he says, yes, so the world is for the taking, and the world is all about, you know, the smells and the sounds and the conquering and, and the taking of things. The, the, yeah, the, 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 the pure hedonism. Um, and so he, this, that's Harold's reason for existence. Okay. He's the opposite of jaded. You could not call him jaded. Yes. He, the, he is almost, you would even say, romantic. Mm. Um, and sensory. Um, um, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the travel, and all you got to do is just have the cojones to reach out and take it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so his, his criticism of Christianity or his criticism of, of the faith of the king of Wessex is that you guys are boring. Mm. Is that like your faith in your God has uh, drained you of joie de vie, I guess you could sort of say. All right. So that's Harold. So he finishes a little thing. King Gunthram smiled a little and said, it is enough. Nephew, let Elf retune the string. A boy must needs like bellowing, but the old ears of a careful king are glad of songs less rough. So the king's like, man, just like tone it down. I never liked punk music. Yeah, yeah it's a little too loud. <laughs> so here comes the next one. Blue-eyed was Elf the minstrel with womanish hair and ring, yet heavy was his hand on sword, though light upon the string. And as he stirred the strings of the harp, the notes but four or five. The heart of each man moved in him like a babe buried alive. So he's like Enya. Yes. The guy before was playing some thrash metal, and this guy's like, who can say? Exactly. Although like like a dark Enya. Um, Yeah, okay. And they felt the land of the folk songs spread southward of the Dane, and they heard the good Rhine flowing in the heart of all Alamein. They felt the land of the folk songs where the gift hangs on the tree, where the girl gives ale at morning and tears come easily. The mighty people, womanlike, that have pleasure in their pain, as he sang of Balder Beautiful, whom the heavens loved in vain. As he sang of Balder Beautiful, whom the heavens could not save, till the world was like a sea of tears and every soul a wave. And he sings, 
There is always a thing forgotten when all the world goes well. A thing forgotten as long ago when the gods forgot the mistletoe, and soundless as an arrow of snow, the arrow of anguish fell. The thing on the blind side of the heart, on the wrong side of the door. The green plant groweth, menacing, almighty lovers in the spring. There is always a forgotten thing, and love is not secure. And all that sat by the fire were sad. Save Ogier, who was stern, and his eyes hardened even to stones, and he took up the harp in turn. So we'll get to Ogier in a second. Okay, so what's, what is um, Elf's en- reasons? Enjoy it while you can, Thrash Metal Kid, because it's always going to go sour in worse, the end. Right? Yeah. yeah. Everybody dies, bro. The, yeah. It's not so much that everybody dies. It's just that that behind every life of pleasure is... He's not so much that, like, everything dies. Maybe it is. But there's a deep sorrow behind everything. There's a deep sorrow behind every joy is Elf. Love is not guaranteed forever. It will turn in sorrow. That's right. right. There's all, there is sorrow everywhere. There's sorrow everywhere. And there's also a relishing or a different kind of pleasure that comes in the wallowing of that sorrow. Hmm. Now, again, I'm positing this as not good. These are not good sentiments. Right. These are sentiments counter to the song of Alfred, which he will say at the end, the Christian song. But man, when I read these sentiments, at least the first two, the idea of this sort of like youthful drink the world to its dregs, but then you hit a certain age and you realize that a life doing that is not meaningful. And there's like this deep sort of sadness or mournfulness of the world. Um, and so Elf, who's a little bit older, is saying like, oh man, like you think everything is amazing, but there's this, there's this sorrow that lingers behind it. Um, man, I'm trying to think of like, uh, of, uh, of maybe like a, a cultural example of this. The only thing I can think of is like, um. That kind of sorrow that's being talked about is this is the sort of sorrow that is in the background of the Great Gatsby. Hmm. That like Gatsby is sort of this I love the world, but there's this sort of longing sadness behind it. Um, this is also a theme that gets explored in a wonderful book um, called Brideshead Revisited. If you've ever, um, we've never really talked about. It. I just read it. I've only read it once, but it's written by Evelyn whose last name I can't pronounce, like Wow or Way or Wog or... It's one of those Welsh names. <laughs> yep. Um, but he is, he's sort of exploring this theme as well of the sort of like the party area of the 1920s and the jazz era, but then there's this sort of underlying misery underneath that. Um, and I think Chesterton is tapping in on that. He's sort of ex- living in this time of, of high, you know, drinking deeply of pleasure. Uh, but then here comes... Um, elf, and he's sort of saying that no, underneath that is sort of this this sorrow behind all of the party. So that's Elf's take. Right. Okay, Ogier, who's older. Um, so everyone who listens to Elf songs gets sad, except for save Ogier, who right. was stern, and his eyes hardened even to stones, and he took the harp in turn. Earl Ogier of the stone and sling was awed to ear and sight. Old he was, but his locks were red. And jests were all the words he said. Yet he was sad at board was was sad at board in bed and savage in the fight. So he's old, but he's still got nice young hair. Yep. Tells a lot of jokes, but 
He's sad when he goes to bed? He's sad when he goes to bed and at board, so I'm at food. Okay, so he's grumpy then, when he eats and he's grumpy when he goes to bed. So either with his wife or just in his family. And then and, and yeah. is savage when he fights. And he says, You sing of the young gods easily in the days when you are young. But I go smelling you and sods, and I know there are gods behind the gods, gods that are best unsung. And a man grows ugly for women, and a man grows dull with ale. Well, if he find in his soul at last fury that does not fail. The wrath of the gods behind the gods, who would rend all gods and men. Well, if the old man's heart hath still wheels sped of rage and roaring will, like cataracts to break down and kill. Well, for the old man then, well, there is one tall shrine to shake or one live man to rend for the wrath of the gods behind the gods who are weary to make an end. There lives one moment for a man when the door at his shoulder shakes, when the taut rope parts under the pull and the barest branch is beautiful one moment while it breaks. So rides my soul upon the sea that drinks the howling ships, though in black jest it bows and nods under the moon with silver rods. I know it is roaring at the gods waiting the last eclipse. And in the last eclipse the sea shall stand up like a tower, above all moons made dark and riven, hold up its foaming head in heaven and laugh knowing its hour. And the high ones in the happy town, propped of the planets seven, shall know a new light in the mind, a noise about them and behind, shall hear an awful voice and find foam in the courts of heaven. And you that sit by the fire are young, and true love waits for you. But the king and I grow old, grow old, and hate alone is true. So, are you sure that wasn't written by Captain Ahab? <laughs> by, yeah, seriously. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 exactly Captain Ahab. He believes. So explain that, it. He so Captain Ahab always believed that behind nature there was this malevolent presence yes. that wanted to strike out at you, and yes. the white whale was the embodiment of that presence. Mm-hmm. So it wanted to hurt you. It wanted to hurt man. It wanted to hurt whatever. And so his revenge against the whale was going to be a revenge against this unseen presence behind nature. Yeah, and, and Ogier's reason of living is that. Um, you live your old age of hate, and when you die, you take that hate and you bring it to heaven. You bring it to God. You basically are living so that you can rage against that malevolent force. So it's this, it's this sort of hatred. Was it was of, it against that malevolent force, is, or was it in tune with? No, the force? maybe it's in tune. But when he says, um, when he says, when you die. And, and the high ones in the happy town, propped of the planet seven, shall know a new light in the mind, a noise about the men behind, shall hear an awful voice and find foam in the courts of heaven. He's it's this idea with him, right? of like, yeah, that he's, he's attacking in his death. He's attacking the gods. Exactly. Right? In yeah. his death, he's going to bring his hate. So he is living a life of bringing hate to everybody. He is going to basically embody this. He's going to cut down and kill. And then even in his death. The idea of the rising foam is his hate and his chaos, and he's going to bring that to whatever order exists in the universe. He is going to bring that destructive force because behind uh, all order is this disorder. Yeah, I thought that he was sort of in tune with that God behind the gods. So he's so. going to go into the town of the happy gods and say, yes. like, 
the reckoning has come. And so you're young gods who love the thief and are like, oh, you kids, you go get yours while you can. He's like, those gods need to know that there are gods behind them that are going to rend it all and are going to rend it all. And he's like an agent of those gods, but he's also, you know, angry at those gods. It's very HP Lovecraft. Yeah. I've never read any Lovecraft. Really? You don't know yeah. Lovecraft? So, you know Cthulhu, the yeah, Cthulhu yeah. mythos? So he came up with these old gods that were more ancient than anything we currently had, and they were just these giant malevolent presences. If you ever opened the door to one of these old gods, they basically just came and Destroyed everything. if you looked at them, you would go insane. Yeah. Anyone who saw the old gods just went nuts, and then they would, yeah, come and destroy and kill and murder, and that's the old gods. Yeah, so this is Ogier's belief. He's like, mm-hmm. all you young kids, you know, have your pleasure while you can. Oh, and then also... There's also something about that, like, that sickly sweet sadness that you can wallow in that is also a sign of youth, a sign of immaturity. And Ogier thinks it's a sign of maturity to be angry Hmm. and to be wrathful. So do you think this is sort of in tune with all the different movements? Like you have the... uh you yes. have your roaring 20s. Yes. Like you you hit 20 and you're like, I'm just going to take the world apart. You hit 30 and you're like, oh my goodness, life is so hard. And then you hit 50 and you're just angry. Yeah. No, I think there's something to that. And I think, like I said, I think this is a, pro- he, uh, Chesterton is showing a progression that comes of the person that does not have the hope of the gospel or the hope of this, of the story. And this is what the, what um, Alfred, the King of Wessex is going to is going to basically get at them at the end. Now, Gunthram's going to play a song too, and he's the last step. Oh, interesting. Um, but um, so Ogier has this, his operating status is hatred. So you get the sense that like, yes, when you're young, you suck the marrow out of life. And then when that, when you realize that that doesn't fulfill, you get sad. And when you realize that life has sadness, you realize that there's a malevolent force behind it that has being a jerk to everybody. And then you embrace the rage and become the sort of agent of blood. Of course, there's a malevolent presence. It gives you it gives you all those pleasures and then it wrenches them it away. And then takes it away. Yeah. Okay, and then Gunthram. And Gunthram shook his head but smiled, for he was a mighty clerk, and he had read lines in the Latin books when all the north was dark. He said, "I am older than you, Ogier. Not all things would I rend, for whether life be bad or good." It is best to abide the end. He took the great, great harp wearily, even Gunthram of the Danes, with wide eyes bright as the one long day on the long polar plains. For he sang of a wheel returning, and the mire trod back to mire, and how red hells and golden heavens are castles in the fire. He sings, It is good to sit where the good tales go, to sit as our fathers sat, But the hour shall come after his youth, when a man shall know not tales but truth, and his heart fail thereat. When he shall read what is written, so plain in clouds and clods, when he shall hunger without hope, even for evil gods. For this is a heavy matter, and the truth is cold to tell. Do we not know, have we not heard, the soul is like a lost bird, the body a broken shell? And a man hopes, being ignorant, till in white woods apart, he finds at last the lost bird dead, and a man may still lift up his head, but never more his heart. There comes no noise but weeping out of the ancient sky, 
and a tear is in the tiniest flower because the gods must die. The little brooks are very sweet, like a girl's ribbon curled, but the great sea is bitter that washes all the world. Strong are the Roman roses, or the free flowers of the heath, but every flower, like the flower of the sea, smelleth with the salt of death. And the heart of the locked battle is the happiest place for men, when shrieking souls as shafts go by, and many have died and all may die, though the world be a mystery, death is most distant then. Death brazes bright above the cup and clear above the crown, but in that dream of battle we seem to tread it down. Wherefore I am a great king, and waste the world in vain. Because man hath no, not other power, save that in dealing death for dower, he may forget it for an hour to remember it again. And slowly his hands and thoughtfully fell from the lifted lyre, and the owls moaned from the mighty trees, till Alfred caught it to his knees and smote it in his ire. Um, so, okay, what's Gunthram's view? He's a nihilist, right? He is a, or a, ni- fat- a fatalist. He's or- a nihilist or a fatalist, or at least um, someone who has said, we have killed the gods, and now we have to exist in a godless world. Or at least they, they can die. Death is ever-present for all of us, including them. Yes, and we would long for a time when evil, even we had evil gods, but now we have no gods. We have a world of meaninglessness, and the only thing that we have is the void. And so I fight. And the reason I fight is because in battle, I forget the void for a moment. Yeah, because everyone's dying around me and I might die too, but at least, I, you know, he's got something to focus That's on. That's right. I push, down, I push down the dread in the heat of battle for a moment. Woof. Ah, uh, yes. And so, okay. So do you think there's something to this? Do you think Chur- uh, Churchill, do you, sorry, do you think um, Chesterton. Chesterton is saying that, there's, that this is kind of the progression my thesis is that this is the progression of the culture or of the man or of, the, if you want to run the program, of kind of a he, like beginning in hedonism or a sort of a, a, a paganism or a lack of belief in, in God. Uh, that you let that program run and you eventually get to Gunthram. I wonder if it's an age, an argument on age or an argument. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't you think that don't, I talk with teenagers that hold that view of Gunthram um, closer to the nihilistic view? I don't know. And it's just because we are like in like terms of in that age, our age. That's what I mean. That yeah. we've been so not, that sort of if the 20s were the yeah. or if we want to say in America, the, the 60s were the free love, you know, drink, drink life, you know, rip the system. I don't want to I'm going to sort of, you know, live my life. To a sadness around things being meaningless and there being no point to any of it for Elf. And to, now we're living you, in What the, did you call that? The 80s or 90s? <laughs> probably 80s, honestly. I mean, that's... Um, yeah. Yeah, there, there's uh, there's wealth post-World post War II, which leads then to financial engineering in the 80s that actually um, really hurt a lot of people. Um, you can see Wall Street where... Anyway, the movie Wall Street where a company is split up and people lose their job and it's a bummer. Um, to... I don't know how I would connect that for Ogier. When, well, there's the, there's the time of rage. I mean, you have the... The sort of the what? 90s were the time of the 90s, anti-globalization yeah. protests. Oh, the 90s. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against yeah. the Machine. And then uh, and I, we still exist in, a, in a, at least in a sense of a lot of rage today. Or, um, uh, or have we moved on to nihilism? And then we sort of move into this nihilism. Yeah. I, it feels like we're still in rage, you think? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of anger 
I, I see that more than fatalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More than sort of like giving up. I don't know. Well, because rage is like the, well, no, I'm not going to give into despair. I'm going to f- believe in something, but then the thing you believe in is is anger. I know there's um, some, sometimes something made of the deaths of despair that have led to a reduction of um, life expectancy in the U.S. Sure. over the last five years. Totally. Um, and those are deaths of suicide or overdosing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but then, so these yeah. are the so these are the beliefs of the of the of the pagans. These right. are the beliefs of um, basically the conquering army. So the the people that are winning temporarily right. are, are miserable. Are miserable, right. and um, and so then uh, Alfred, King of Wessex, has his um, has his response, and so this is and this is his response okay. is. Um, he heaved the head of the harp on high and swept the framework barred. And his stroke had all the rattle and spark of horses flying hard. He sings, When God put man in a garden, he girt him with a sword and sent him forth a free knight that might betray his Lord. He brake him and betrayed him, and fast as far he fell, till you and I may stretch our necks and burn our beards in hell. But though I lie on the floor of the world, with the seven sins for rods, I would rather fall with Adam than rise with all your gods. What have the strong gods given? Where have the glad gods led when Gunthrum sits on a hero's throne and asks if he is dead? Sirs, I am but a nameless man, a rhymester without home. Yet since I come of the Wessex clay and carry the cross of Rome, I will even answer the mighty earl that asked of Wessex men, why they be meek and monkish folk, and bow to the white lord's broken yoke. What sign have we save blood and smoke? Here is my answer then. That on you is fallen the shadow, and not upon the name. That though we scatter, and though we fly, and you hang over us like the sky, you are more tired of victory than we are tired of shame. Whoa. I know it's, it's awesome. Oh, so good. That though you hunt the Christian man like a hare on the hillside, the hare hath still more heart to run than you have heart to ride. Oh. That though all lances split on you, all swords be heaved in vain, we have more lust again to lose than you to win again. Your lords sit high in the saddle, a broke. Your lord sits high in the saddle, a broken-hearted king. But our King Alfred, lost from fame, fallen among foes or bonds of shame, in I know not what mean trade or name, has still some song to sing. Our monks go robed in rain and snow, but the heart of flame therein. But you go clothed in feast and flames, yet all is ice within. Nor shall all iron dooms make dumb men wandering ceaselessly. If it be not better to fast for joy than feast for misery. Nor monkish order only slides down as feel to fen. All things achieved and chosen pass as the white horse fades in the grass, no work of Christian men. Ere the sad gods that made your gods saw their sad sunrise pass, the white horse of the white horse veil that you have left to darken and fail was cut out of the grass. Therefore, your end is on you, is on you and your kings, not for a fire in Eli Fen, not that your gods are nine or ten, but because it is only Christian men guard even heathen things. 
For our God hath blessed creation, calling it good. I know what spirit with whom you blithely band hath blessed destruction with his hand, yet by God's death the stars shall stand and the small apples grow. And the king, with harp on shoulder, stood up and ceased his song. And the owls moaned from the mighty trees, and the Danes laughed loud and long. (laughs) Isn't that great? Dude, how can they laugh after that? How can the Danes laugh if he's like, you are sorry, broken men? You are sorry, broken men, but we have the will to lose forever. And the Danes are like, oh my goodness, that's so lame. I know. I love the fact that the Danes laugh. So what's what's Arthur, or sorry, Arthur, what's uh, um, Alfred's argument? That even if we lose, we're in the light. Yeah. Even if we lose, we are, there is still an order to the world. We're not dejected. We're not living in hedonism, sorrow, anger, or despair. That's right. That yeah. even if I fall with Adam, I would rather fall with Adam than rise with all your gods. Um, That's that, such a good line. I know. Holy cow. Um, and so this, now that I read that, I'm reminded of actually what the white horse means. So Alfred and Chesterton is, uh, says that... Um, the pagans who made the white horse have stopped believing in whatever goodness the white horse symbolized and have let it grow to seed and get all decayed. And Alfred, whose Christians did not make the white horse, but when Alfred becomes king, he cleans the white horse and makes it gleam on the hillside again as like a Christian reimagining or or like repurposing or baptizing of the old thing into his Christian kingdom. And it's that phrase that, that, that Christian men guard even heathen things is the, the, the uh, what, what, do you th- what do you think Chesterton's getting at that? Because I know Lewis talked about this, that, that, um, um, that the paganism, the goodness of the pagan world can still be good when it's reimagined and re-understood from Christianity, which came sort of out of and redeemed paganism? Like, think of the Christmas tree, you know? Well, but what do, you, what do you think he's getting at with this, that Christians guard even heathen, guard even heathen things? That's humanism, isn't it? That's the excellence of what it is to be a man um, and that there is reason and purpose to it beyond, I don't know, it prepares one for the next life. That's the misery of the Danes, is that there's no purpose to anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. other than eat and drink and it's because they'll die. And then that's the end of it. It's redemption of the world, right? It's, you know, redeeming even the things that aren't necessarily an integral part of the church itself, but the world entire. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your answer was great, Maggie. That's humanism. Yeah. I I love that image that, that the pagans of old used to believe in something and they carved that white horse out of the hill as a testament to their belief. But as the ages have gone on, they have stopped believing in that thing, and their ancestors have let that thing go to rot and are now conquering with despair. That even, you know, the victorious thing king sits on the throne and asks if he is dead, right? I love it. Right. Um, and Alfred is saying that, um, um, that yeah, the, the man um, who believes in the god of the nails of Rome— you know, ha- even if he even if he falls, there's still that there's still the order to the universe. And so then, when Alfred becomes king of Wessex, he restores the horse. I don't know. It's just such a, it's so 
just such a rich thought, but it's, uh, I, I still, I can't fully wrap my brain around all of it, but, but I, there's no idolatry to like, yeah, were yeah. They, were they worshiping, were the pagans worshiping this white horse or it was a, it was a symbol. I think something. it's so old that no one knows okay. that, that that's, that's, I think, and really the, the, the whole point is that because it is so old and has gone to rot that all the, the, the ancestors who made it, we don't even no, why it didn't. So their their pagan paganism didn't have the staying power, um, but the Christians are going to absorb and appropriate that horse into their own practice. That the white horse is going to be the symbol of Christ, um, who has the staying power. And so, yeah. by going back and cleaning it and, and scouring it, which is what he does after the battle, that this is a an example to everybody around them that sort of the, the power that Christianity has to not only give structure for the life now, but it can go back and can say the good things of the past that were only, you know, shadows of good or were only metaphors of good. Here comes the real thing, and now we can put the, right, the white horse in its proper place. The, the white horse can be a symbol of what we now know, which is the kingship of, of Christ. Anyway, it's a great poem. It is awesome. Um, there's also this whole—sorry, oh, go ahead. Did you say how you came across it? <sighs> I don't know, but I, I'm—you know, uh, yeah, I really don't know. Um, but um, probably just my enjoyment of Chesterton when I was younger, and I came across it somehow. And when I read it, I was like, oh, man, this thing's— Kind of baller. Um, but there's more to it. So like the three heroes of the Christians and the three uh, Danes that we heard, we heard singing, they sort of mirror each other. So like, um, yeah, so they, they've got their own. So like Mark and, uh, you know, what? it's been so long since I've actually read it to see which ones mirror with each other. Like who does Ogier uh, represent on the Christian side? Um, who does... Um, elf represent on the Christian side. Anyway, but you can go and you can find that that sort of similarity there. The battle's real great. It's just real great descriptions of, of the battle. And then the end is awesome. And um, um, in the middle of the battle, when it looks like all hope is lost, um, Alfred confesses to all of the, his sins, including adultery and all some really like terrible things that he did in his life. And he's like, who am I? What man? What man can stand in front of God and without confessing his sins? And he confesses his terrible sins and ends up winning the war anyway. And he's humble the whole time. And then Gunther at the end is like, "I don't want despair. I want, I want this." And is baptized, and he goes back and stops conquering. That is intense. Yep. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, now I want to read it. Yeah, you should. Like, you can yeah. borrow it if you want. It's a great book. Well, I'm I'm actually looking at buying the entire G.K. Chesterton collection oh, for well, Kindle you right can now. Also do that too. Yeah, seriously, it's a dollar. Oh, it is awesome. Two yeah. bucks. Yep. Um, so I've got nothing more to say of, of it other than um, I find that just a fascinating thought to think of it as like that that paganism has a cycle to it, and what starts in what seems to be a healthy rejection of the, of, you know, sort of the pious Christian killjoy, killjoys, ends up being the only terminus is in despair. And I think when you look back in European history, we talk about the 1920s, American history, talking about the 1960s, like, I can't see how our cultural moment, it, it is something that explains our cultural moment in a way that I find satisfying. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Intense. The poetry was exceptional. And, and the yeah. ballad is just awesome. No kidding. Cool. That's awesome. 
Well, thank you all for listening. This has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. If you want to email us, you can send those emails to classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us online at classicalstuff.net. You can find us on Twitter at classicalstuff, spelled C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. That is on Twitter. And I think that's everything. So for Graham, AJ, and Thomas, we are signing off. Signing off. Awesome. Bye. Ciao. Bye.